Our next guests began making radio in the 1970s, alone together in the empty studio of KUSP in Santa Cruz. At that time, they'd never heard of All Things Considered on the fledgling National Public Radio Network. Instead, they dreamed up their own style of storytelling inspired by FM radio, rock and roll, and yes, the layering of rocks in the Grand Canyon. And aren't we glad they did. Davia Nelson and Nikki Silva, the Kitchen Sisters, from those quiet days, have gone on to become radio rock stars, winning every major woo, winning every major award for their beautifully crafted, groundbreaking series, including Lost and Found Sound, The Sonic Memorial, and Hidden Kitchens. And no surprise, they've come up with a new intriguing series, and it's in the works, and it's called The Secret Life of Girls. I'm very, very happy to introduce Davia Nelson and Nikki Silva, the Kitchen Sisters. Thank you, Joanna. They're going to end our conference with some of their favorite things, including many, many surprises. Take it away. Hi, everybody. Um, there, you know, Johanna and Julie called us up and asked us to play our favorite things, and we just they went around and around. I mean, there's a million ways to cut this favorite things cake, isn't there? I mean, we are so inspired and moved and affected, influenced by the work of so many people in this room and all our colleagues, and, you know, we could just play the greatest hits forever. And in our hearts, we did for the session. But kind of where we went instead with the idea was our favorite thing was the effect of a life in radio. What happens when you live a radio life? And what happens when you produce a piece? And we wound up calling it the reverberations of radio. It sort of who um, starts traveling with you in your life once you put a story out, what kind of tribe you're a part of, what you learn about, who you encounter how your life expands and gets complicated uh, from being in a radio life. So we're kind of using that as some of our themes along with our influences, inspirations today and favorite things. As Joanna was saying that when we first started at KUSP, we weren't listening to a lot of other people's radio, so we didn't have that to draw from. And but we were thinking a lot about what a lot of radio producers were thinking about. And But we were drawing the inspiration from film and from writings, and uh, we thought we'd kind of take off on film a little bit today. The Maisel's brothers, we were really interested in their verite style, um, Grey Gardens and Gimme Shelter, and uh, I think that was just a huge eye-opener for both of us. Uh, I was trying to mess with filmmaking, and Davia was really into film, so it was natural that we'd go in that direction. And I, don't, I think we still think we're making movies. I mean, I know they're on the radio, but in our mind, they're really cinema. Um, we see them as we're doing them. At the same time that we were starting, there was another kook out there um, making films, struggling to make his first film. He, as we say, was big talk, no underwear. <laughs> and uh, Werner Herzog kind of called him out. This was Errol Morris. Uh, this was a late 70s, 79, and Werner Herzog said to um, Errol Morris, if you make that film you're always talking about, I'll eat my shoe. 
And we were trying to get the courage to, we weren't calling ourselves the Kitchen Sisters quite yet, to do our first thing, and we were a lot of talk, too. And uh, something about this other artist challenging another artist to produce their work and get past the fear, and then wonderful filmmaker Les Blank, who probably a lot of you know, uh, filmed this. And so we're going to open. We have our curtain maidens, our light queen, we're going to darken the room here for a moment, and uh, here's one of our favorite things. I found out, Liz, that that bothered me, really, because when I started to think after a lot of work that I had done, I found out that for almost a year I had not cooked a meal, and uh, a grown-up man like me should not spend a week without having cooked a big meal that's bothered me a lot, so I should go more into cooking. What are you pouring in? Film duck to soften these up. I think you should put some rosemary. Yeah. And these branches are there. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's going to taste well. Yeah. <laughs> Looks already good. Look at this. <laughs> good. So. Yeah, there should be some more water on it, and we'll cook them for a couple of hours. So, the devil stuff in it. This here, on top of it. It should be like a pig's foot. That uh, gets, uh, it's always a little, uh, the leather should all soften up and to serve it with something like uh, the beans or a chili and lots of onions sprinkled on top and a little raw garlic and some uh, spices like some oregano or some more of the rosemary. There's a lot of, uh, of garlic inside and onions. And with uh, chili, chili and bean, yes, we forgot the salt. That's right. Yeah. Five hours later. <laughs> hey, give me a mind of shoe. It's not licorice, all of Charlie Chaplin. Bernard said, "I doubt. I, you know, I don't believe you have the guts. But if you do it, I'll come to Berkeley and eat my shoe at a showing of the film." And spurred into action, uh, the next morning, uh, Errol called me on the phone and asked me if I happen to know any cameramen around or camera people who might have equipment and might want to go with him and film something on no money and speculation and I gave him the name of a very good cameraman. They went and filmed it and in two days he was so much of a confident filmmaker that he fired the cameraman and then hired another cameraman and fired that cameraman and then got a third cameraman and uh, kept him and with little by little it rolled along and it became a film that um, was shown in work print to the New York Film Festival Committee and was premiered last October at the New York Film Festival, 
Then it was shown at the London Film Festival, where American Film Magazine wrote that it was the best film there. Then it was shown at Berlin Film Festival, and now just at Los Angeles FilmX, and it's uh, clear that it's one of the major American film debuts of the decade. So it really is a film you have to stay and see. And Werner called on Monday, and uh, much to our surprise and horror, <laughs> he <laughs> said he was ready to come and eat his shoe. And here he is. Now, I don't know uh, how far we should let him go in this, whether we should... Uh, he, he has cooked his shoe here, and, uh, <laughs> and uh, he's going to try and eat it. And uh, I was going to suggest that uh, we cut up a little pieces and everybody uh, help him a bit. But uh, could you welcome Werner Herzog? I didn't mean to, to eat this shoe uh, in public. I intended to, to eat it in the restaurant, but I was pushed a little bit into it, and it makes sense to some extent, because it should be an encouragement for all of you who want to make films and who are just scared to start and who haven't got the guts, so you can follow a good example. Uh, and. Um, I think it should also, I, I do this here in, in public because uh, I want to help Errol's film. It still has no release yet, and it should be released by one of the major studios, then I would be happy. And uh, that's why I'm here. And uh, you shouldn't worry about it. We cooked it for five hours, but uh, it's still <laughs> more stiff than before. So I brought, I brought some... Uh, pair of poultry scissors and some sharp knives. You can have the same experience every single day you just drop in at a, a Kentucky Fried Chicken. I've survived so many I've survived so many Kentucky Fried Chicken, so it won't do harm to me. <laughs> so we play uh, okay, yeah we'll open back up the curtains. We play that for the encouragement to everybody of taking that leap, of doing your first piece, of getting past the fear and of coming to a place like Third Coast that is sort of the 300-person version of Werner Herzog. Uh, no one's eating shoes, but anyway, in the spirit of encouragement. So we're kind of known for our complicated mixes and our really sound-rich pieces, but I think both of us feel that some of the our favorite things are the most simply done conversations between two people that are just, you know, inspired and uh, that kind of lead you into new ways of thinking. And uh, and we so uh, we're so impressed by people who do this on a weekly, daily basis, and they're part of our lives. Because two people, one to another, with a new idea and an interesting angle, there's nothing better than that. And. Uh, you can dress it up and produce the hell out of it, but um, so fundamental to what we do. It's one of our favorite things. We're listening to a conversation of Brooke Gladstone from On the Media. It's been almost 12 you. years since an upstart cable channel called The Food Network first went on the air, and in that time a host of celebrity chefs from Emeril Lagasse to Rachel Ray have roasted, broiled, and baked their way onto the American media menu and into 86 million homes. What accounts for the Food Network's success is not necessarily the quality of the food or the service, 
What keeps us tuning in to yet another choreographed confection by yet another culinary star is the vision of great-looking meals. After all, we're not actually tasting anything. We're watching other people, more nimble than we, make it seem easy, which can be exciting. As writer Frederick Kaufman argues in the current issue of Harper's Magazine, like porn. Frederick Kaufman joins me now on the show. Fred, welcome to On the Media. Great to be here. Well, let's talk a little bit about the history of food on TV. I mean, most of us can remember Julia Child on PBS. I can't think of a less pornographic host, but you say that's not the point. At least it wasn't in that show. You know, in the old days of food television, if you talk to the producers, if you talk to the people who were involved, they were already making jokes about it's food porn. The difference today is that the porniness has become more pervasive. Nobody would confuse Julia herself with a porn star. However, that leg of lamb, that big chunk of steak, that was the star, and the fetishized focus on it was clearly a pornographic focus. Now, for your Harper's piece, you met with a woman named Barbara Nitke, who is a photographer who worked for many years in the porn industry. In fact... You went to her home one afternoon, ordered in some Mexican food, and watched the Food Network for six hours. So what did you learn about camera angles and lighting and, and the nuts and bolts of gastroporn? Well, Barbara has been a professional in the porn industry, taking still photographs for many years, worked on over 300 porn films, and she really gave me an education in terms not only of the shots, but in terms of the wacky, strange soundtracks this kind of caressing camera going over the food, back and forth and up and down. One of the things that makes it extremely porny is the repetition. You'll see the peach and the camera going over those peaches again, then giada, then the peach, then giada, then the peach. And so this is very similar to how porn works. So let's talk about that Giada De Laurentiis episode where she is cooking these baked peaches. You see her using a, a melon baller to sort of get the pit out. Yeah, one of the things Barbara Nitke points out also on, on a show like Giada is that the sound, the incredibly over-miked sound, you can hear this kind of the clicks and the snaps and the little crunchy edges of things. Let me just give my eggs a quick whisk and then we're going to add some cheese. It's also shot very differently. It's, it's actually shot single camera as opposed to a four-camera television format. And so it's, it's almost shot like a 35-millimeter film. You get an amazing angle on Giada, who is beautiful and who always is wearing a very close-cut sleeveless top. And then you get the food, and then you get Giada, and then you get her fingers on the food. And, oh, it's so moist. Mmm. Peaches are juicy. Crunchy from your Amoretti cookies. The sugar's caramelized. I know you're going to think that's all we think about is food, but <laughs> anyway, um, it's just so, Brooke, thank you for everything you do. You're one Brooke of our favorite here. things on the media. Stand up, Brooke. We're also into archivists. Uh, we have this saying around the Kitchen Sisters office, uh, we, al we always rely on the kindness of archivists, and they have led us to so many of our stories, and they've been a crucial part of our work from the very, very early days. I mean, from digging around in 
crates full of old records in my father's garage and finding old home recordings, which so opened this world of that kind of voice from beyond. Uh, we were working on the Lost and Found Sound series with uh, Jay Allison and a number of people in the room worked on that series with us. And we spent a lot of time with archivists and we found ourselves in the Rogers and Hammerstein uh, archives in New York City, the New York City Public Library. And we were looking for one thing, but I think this happens a lot uh, with people in radio. What you're looking for isn't necessarily what you need to find. And uh, we asked... Donald, it was towards the end of our visit, and we'd gotten what we'd come for, and we said, well, Donald, do you know of anything, uh, you know, that's great, that nobody else knows about? And he revealed to us this um, collection of cardboard acetate discs that were recorded at a Penny Arcade in 1947 in New Orleans by Tennessee Williams. I know. And his lover, Poncho. And his lover, Poncho. You can take so also, just we send this out to archivists of the world, and um, they are some of the unsung heroes, and especially as the economy capsizes, and I feel like there are these historians and archivists out there um, who are trying desperately to preserve culture on every level, and um, so try to support them, um, cause, and also utilize their work in your work if you're looking for new material. Here's a little Tennessee. The following is a series of cardboard acetate discs recorded in a voiceograph recording booth at a New Orleans Penny Arcade in 1948. 6A1. The label says, one was true, one was faithful, one stayed in my heart forever. The speaker is Tennessee Williams. I think the strange, the crazed, the queer will have their holiday this year. I think for just a little while, there will be pity for the wild. I think in places known as gay, in clubs and cabarets and bars, Hero will serenade Hero with frantic drums and sad guitars. I think for some uncertain reason, mercy will be shown this season to the lovely and misfit, to the brilliant and deformed, I think they will be housed and warmed and fed and comforted a while before with such a tender smile the earth destroys a crooked child. One I kept, two I lost, three is sheltered under frost. One I tired of, two still wanted, three the starry meadows haunted. One was faithful, two was clever, three stayed in my heart forever. I'm Dakin Williams, the only surviving member of the Williams family that produced Thomas Lanier Williams III, otherwise known as Tennessee Williams. And my father called him Miss Nancy because he was a son of a sissy, because he didn't play baseball like I did, because he had had diphtheria as a child and he could hardly use his legs at all until he was eight or ten years old. And so naturally, he didn't engage in baseball. He started reading books a lot, too, at a very young age. And my mother used to censor them. And sometimes she would grab a book bunch of them by D.H. Lawrence and return them to the library and throw them on the librarian's desk and said, look what you let my son have. <laughs> 6A4, Heavenly Grass. The speaker is Tennessee Williams. 
reached into a walk and given the grass, all day while the skies and tears blast. My feet to the walk in heavenly grass, all night while the lonely stars will pass. Then my feet come down to walk on earth, and my mother cried when they heard. Now my feet walk far and my feet walk fast. But they still got to get the heavenly grass. He did write those lyrics intended to be set to music, which Paul Bowles did. Bowles did the music for The Glass Menagerie, but he also did the music for the poems that Tennessee wrote called uh, Blue Mountain Ballads. Heavenly grass, my feet took a walk in heavenly grass all night while the distant stars rolled past. My feet came down and walked on earth, and my mother cried when she gave me birth. So remember at the beginning how we talked about what we love about radio is how it follows you, how what you put out comes back, you become the stories you tell. Uh, I went to see Prairie Home Companion fil- uh, filmed live in a town hall in New York City, and Jeff Muldar. Do people know who Jeff is? Musician, used to be with the Jim Queskin Jug Band, and Maria and Jeff Muldar. He sang on the show, and then a bunch of us went out to dinner afterwards, and he was sort of catching on to this idea of lost and found sound, and I started telling him about Kitchen Sisters and what we do, and mentioned the Tennessee Williams uh, piece. And he said, oh, I've taken these poems of Tennessee Williams, Heavenly Grass, and I've set it to music. And he proceeded to send us this piece of music that he had done to the exact same thing we had used in our piece, and we sent him that. And so we wanted to bring you Jeff Muldar's interpretation of that same piece. Radio is your passport, right? Radio is barter. I mean, right before we're going on stage, John Miller walked up to us from Homelands and handed us his CDs, the collection that he and Sandy Tolan have been doing together on working. It is a license to talk to strangers. If, you know, especially so many of you are young and new and starting out, and you know, maybe you're shy. Jay Allison always says to us, "I'm shy," and you know, a lot of us are shy. We hide behind our stories. That's why we tell other people's stories. But 
it is this wonderful universal ticket you have to talk to anybody on the planet and God knows what the next medium will be it won't be CDs I don't know what people will hand each other crystalline teardrops that hold sound or something I don't know but anyway we just that's one of our favorite things is that part of it we thought we'd show another film here inspiration somebody that's uh, really I think influenced a lot of us in radio and media yeah, and it, I guess radio must have influenced him too now that I think of it because he went and made that movie about Prairie Home Companion we're speaking of Robert Altman and um, Altman, I think we were developing our Kitchen Sisters style of archival audio interviews, oral histories, music, field recordings, all layered up and cross-talking. And it, while we were incubating our style, we were watching McCabe and Mrs. Miller, which had that incredible Leonard Cohen soundtrack. Why was Leonard Cohen in McCabe and Mrs. Miller? I don't know. Well, I do know, actually, because the sound guy on the set played Leonard Cohen while they were filming it and so by the time they went to mix the movie somehow Leonard Cohen felt right even though it was a western right that thing to do with it anyway and then his uh, all his cross conversations and I don't know how many people remember the movie Nashville but that's what we're going to show right now and that movie had a big impact on how we tried to introduce all kinds of characters and all kinds of things with some sonic underbed and our homage to Robert Altman. For every 1,000 committed in Tokyo, yes, these are the true figures. Some very funny notions have developed in American politics. Um, let me see. Um, have you any children? Yes, I have two children. I have a boy and I have a girl. Oh, isn't that nice? How old are they? 12 and 11. Do they want to be singers like their mummy? Uh, well, my, my children are deaf. They're, they are deaf. They were born deaf. Oh, my God, how awful. No, it's so not. depressing. No, now, just a minute. That's not so. I wish you could see my little boy. I want you to oh, meet him. I couldn't. I couldn't. He has I the can't. most incredible That's, personality. the sadness of it. See, what happens? He made a million dollars on a flask water because it had a red dot. In the Last center. One. That's right. Uh, just a red dot. He was sitting in the buffet and he was eating and he saw a woman and she was swatting flies. And uh, she, uh, he said, well, what makes the difference between in flies was? Because it has to do with the Industrial Re Revolution. See, the thing with these country people is they have a real grassroots appeal. Well, hell, they got fans. And they? they're the people that elect the president. Well, we're going to yeah, do we'll line can. up a lot of movie stars. I think people down here feel that movie stars are eccentric and crazy. Communists. Well, well <laughs> a lot of them are. It's been said now. <laughs> and then I want to go to the Grand Ole Opry to have Grand Ole Opry, yeah. forget that. No, because I, I have like to have my record. I'm going up front. I have a gold record, and it needs to be signed. And we're going to Grand Ole Get the hell away from my truck, will you? God damn it. Shit. Bitches. I say, could I please speak to Mr. Tommy Brown? Black strawberries. Oh, um, is it possible no, to have a few words like with Mr. Tommy Brown? Uh, I'm from the BBC and I'm doing her. a documentary on Nashville. And Where I'm, is the BBC? Uh, British Broadcaster. 
Oh, English. It was called Wanda Wanda. No, his song was called Wanda Wanda. Oh, Wanda Wanda. Wanda Wanda. Wanda Wanda. No, it was Wonder Wanda. I our thanks to Robert Altman for inspiring us Many for years, years and years. He started as a guy doing industrial films in Kansas City, you know, just by any, he would make um, films for oil companies. He was hell bent on being a filmmaker, and that's what uh, it took to get to do what he did. Um, one of the, the pieces we were just going to play that was kind of the same approach in a way, or we think of it as that, is this piece, Georgia Gilmore, that we did uh, for the Hidden Kitchens series. Um, and uh, Davia, you're the one that came into town and sort of was lost and didn't know exactly where the place was that she was supposed to be going and went into a beauty shop and asked, and the woman just said, get in the car, I'll take you. And it was just this sort of meandering, lost but found, and it became the sort of opening of this piece that we did. And so what she's trying to say is our favorite things are beauty shops <laughs> and keeping your mic on all at the time. All t- at all times. Never turn off the tape recorder, even if they don't call it a tape recorder anymore. Hey, how you doing? You live on the street. Do you know where uh, Miss Gilmore used to stay? Yeah, Miss George Gilmore. That's Miss Gilmore house down there. You see that marker down there, that historical marker? Oh, yeah, I see it now. You see the plaque in the yard? George Teresa Gilmore. I'm her son, Councilman Mark Gilmore, Jr. George Gilmore. She could cook. 1920, 1990. She was a stone cook. Her food was cooked on the mama level. And Georgia was like big mama, southern type mamas. Maybe 10 or 15 of them. Now, my mother at the time was a midwife by profession. She cooked at National Lunch Company in Montgomery when the movement started. When Mrs. Rose Parks was arrested for refusing to give up her seat in 1955, Mama got involved in the bus boycott. She lost her job because management learned of her being a part of this movement that was going on. My name is Johnny Rebecca. So Georgia Gilmore, Gilmore had a secret civil rights kitchen in Montgomery, and she had a, a job as a, um, a short-order cook in, in a little cafe, and when she got involved in the bus boycott, she was fired. And um, Martin Luther King was there. He was a fledgling young upstart in a church, and uh, he used to have her cook chicken for him and for his friends and people that would come and have meetings. And when she lost her job he helped her get started in a house restaurant in her own home. And it was open to blacks and whites alike, and it was one of the places where people came to meet during the movement. So that was sort of the opening sequence, and she's become this kind of legendary person uh, who really hasn't you know, received much uh, national attention on any level, but is uh, very important in terms of the ground crew, as they called it, of the movement. So listening to that piece and some of these others, we started thinking about, again, the fundamentals of radio. What are favorite things about this medium to us? And 
we thought about orators, you know, someone who can make a great speech, tell a great story, and um, just rivet you with the way they put together their words. And we just thought we'd play a little speech we wanted to just add into the choir today, just a speaker that we, we like his oration. We'd like to hear more from. I, I don't want to spend the next year or the next four years refighting the same fights that we had in the 1990s. I don't want to, I don't want to pit red America against blue America. I want to be the president of the United States of America. And, and if those Republicans come at me with the same fear-mongering and swift-boating that they usually do, then I will take them head on because I believe the American people are tired of fear and tired of distractions and tired of diversions. We can make this election not about fear, but about the future. And that won't just be a democratic victory. That will be an American victory. And that is a victory that America needs right now. So, um, <laughs> I mean, what are we all looking for in telling a good radio story? We're looking for rhythm. We're looking for pace. We're looking for a dramatic use of pause, a dramatic, someone who has something to say, someone who has values, someone who stands for something. Those are the stories we try and tell. Those are the people we're interested in documenting. Someone who cares about what this nation and this planet is going through. Um, we wanted to play another orator. Um, this was someone who was very <laughs> influential in my life on radio. Um, Nikki and I, when we, when we first started as the Kitchen Sisters, I would have uh, recurring dreams that we're about to play Paul Harvey. I had recurring, we started as the Kitchen Sisters as KUSP in Santa Cruz, and I would dream constantly about Paul Harvey, and in my dreams I was, he's a right-wing conservative, um, for people who don't know, um, sort of newscaster, does a report that's been on, what were you saying? An advertiser. An, 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 an advertiser, where ads and news sort of blend seamlessly, and it's called The Rest of the News, it's been on since 1945, every day at noon. And um, in my dreams, we were always fighting with him and then queuing up Hank Williams songs. <laughs> and so we just... But, you know, And he's I also swear, somebody who follows you. If you ever drive across the country, you can find him. He's sort of this... He just leads you on through, his voice. And uh, for in a lot of ways, we could have played Ira Glass right now. Ira, a master of pause, of drama, of creating interesting offbeat rhythms that are very unpredictable that keep you as a listener on the edge. Uh, but let's just hear Paul Harvey. Today's news and comment comes to you from Chicago. Chicago's Peacestone Nation will want to know Jeff Fort and Chester Evans have been busted in New York, a grass rap. Fugitive Timothy Leary in Algeria with some Black Panthers says he's going to sneak back into the United States next Tuesday. Don't bet on it. Page two. 
ABC will televise the Holy Cross Buffalo game Saturday, but will not televise the halftime performance by the Buffalo Band. The band is going to present a pageant in opposition to war and pollution. Birthday in the family, W-H-E-R, Memphis, Tennessee, 15 years today. You know what W-H-E-R stands for? H-E-R is for her. <laughs> it's an all-girl radio station, except for manager Charlie Sullivan and me. All those 15 years, girl announcers only at W-H-E-R in Memphis. Washington, D.C.'s National Press Club has voted no women. Members have voted to continue to keep women journalists out of our National Press Club. My Washington colleagues are always most liberal when it comes to how other people should integrate. Paul Harvey. Good day. That was from 1972. He is also famous for page two. So um, another one of our favorite um, people, favorite things, kind of going back to what we began with Brooke, is um, the idea of just two people talking, the right two people talking and asking a question that you might not have thought to ask yourself. And... Um, Nick Spitzer, how many people know Nick Spitzer's work, American Roots? I wish Nick was here. We wanted to include Nick because also after Katrina, Nick and the show stayed in New Orleans and have been part of the rebuilding. And the power of radio to rebuild a community after a storm. And WWOZ also stayed and came back stronger. And that radio is so fundamentally part of the fabric of a community and can be that light, can be that center. Nick is a folklorist uh, and was worked as a folklorist in Louisiana for years, and uh, he's a professor and a musicologist and a, just a brilliant mind, and he's just done so much for the music community, and then he, sh he shares it on this national level, and he's something that every time one of his uh, podcasts come by uh, my eyes, the titles of them alone... Uh, Jews and the Blues. I mean, just he puts things together in really beautiful ways and makes you just want to be there and listen. This is a, a clip that sort of features two of our favorite people, uh, Tom Waits and uh, Nick Spitzer. I know it's a kind of a standard question, but I just kind of wondered if there were uh, models around you that uh, you took to, either in your family or, or out beyond on radio or records that... Uh, that maybe influenced your sense mm, of your voice. Uh, you know, Marty Robbins and wow. Harry Belafonte, people like that. Mm -hmm. um, Wolfman Jack, I listened to a lot when I was a kid. But, you know, most, most people's, uh, the influences that people have on them aren't necessarily something that you would be able to spot, you know. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if you found out that Frank Sinatra really loved the Rolling Stones, would that surprise you? Yeah. Because, you know, if two people know all the same things, one of you is unnecessary. <laughs> you know, I have to say, there was a one tune I really enjoyed, the 16 shells for a 30-odd six. All right. You actually, I think, make phlegm something that gives a certain authority or emphasis in it. Phlegm with authority. Yeah. 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 That's good. So the other 
favorite thing that we wanted to have at the heart of this presentation is music. Um, we are so sad to see music sort of leaving the public radio landscape. I mean, maybe it's showing up on all music stations, and maybe that'll be a good thing. It from, I think for us, it's a sad day to hear all news so much of the time and not have music within that um, broadcasting day. I mean, anyway, so we, if in an ideal world, if we had two more hours, we'd just be DJing. And Jordan, I would drag you up here and you would DJ with me because you are the next future DJ and you're my hero. But anyway, um, so in pretend that we are DJing five of our favorite songs with really great stories. Instead, since we have so little time uh, for that much music, we're just going to play the Tom Waits of Tuva, uh, who we met up with this summer at the um, Woodstock of Siberia, Albert Kuvasian. So um, we just thought we'd just from Albert's <laughs> collection of covers where in Tuva, Albert recorded Inagata Davida and a lot of Led Zeppelin and Hank Williams and uh, he Ramblin is man. quite extraordinary. So Kuvasian K-U-V-E-Z-I-N We CD. knew we needed these CDs. K-U-V-E-Z-I-N. It's called Yatka. You want to pass it around? This is Nathan Dalton, who uh, is the project manager of all things Kitchen Sisters and will inherit the business of the Kitchen Sisters, so that's <laughs> the Kitchen Brother. And we just are so lucky to be collaborating with him. Also, there's a lot of people in this room who have interned, worked with, apprenticed, whatever, with the Kitchen Sisters. Did they mind standing up for just a moment? Because they're our favorite things, too. Lisa, Eloise, so Melissa Robbins, Noah Miller, thank you so much. And that's the key. Collaboration is the other part of, you know, what is at the essence of us for this. Nikki saying we got to go fast. Okay. There's so, a wedding coming, and we've got a lot to go here. Uh, the other favorite thing for us, especially vis-a-vis -vis Third Coast, is uh, the young people, youth. Rookies, radio rookies, out loud radio, all of you stand up right now. Mm -hmm. Be counted. <laughs> and 
we are um, wanting to play one piece real quick, a little fragment of radio here just to get you in the mood. This uh, was produced by Shirley Star Diaz with Melissa Robbins. And so let's take a short Whenever listen. my parents come up in a conversation, I want to lie. I want to say, all of us live together in one big house. My mother sings while she's folding clothes. My father watches TV, and my brothers and sisters are always in my room, taking my things. But the truth is, when I was 13 years old, my father murdered my mother at the Jets Motor Inn on Queens Boulevard. I have eight brothers and sisters, but the six youngest were adopted, and I don't know where they are. The last time I saw them was when we buried my mom. What do you remember of her? Everything. Jeanette is my oldest sister. We grew up in different foster homes, but we're close now. Our mother loved the music from way back. She used to always sing, Oogie, 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 get down. Oogie, 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 get down. So I definitely remember that. Jeanette knows how to move on. She works. She makes sure her kids look nice for school. And she keeps herself busy. But me, I'm stuck in the past where my future's flying towards me. I'm about to age out of foster care. The first thing is, obviously, meeting with, we have a liaison with housing. Takima Osborne is my caseworker. She tells me what I need to do so I can get my own place. But to me, it sounds like blah, blah, and blah. Melissa and Star, Shirley, will you please stand? We would love to have everybody come up, but I guess we're running out of time. So, Melissa and Shirley. Thank you so much. I don't know how many of you had a chance to be in uh, Beverly Myers' uh, college hotbed classes, but um, those scholars, <laughs> I, those scholars really knocked me out. And yesterday, uh, I, I wasn't in today's class, but yesterday's class was um, igniting. And I just wanted to play uh, a piece, and I'm hoping uh, Prudhoe, I mean, I'm sorry, let me, uh, Prudhoe uh, Singumba and his... Uh, editor, Shelley Robinson from Canada. Uh, could you stand up, please? And I wanted to play a little tiny piece of his piece. And I, one thing, if you could possibly listen to uh, the tapes, you know, Third Coast does all of the sessions, and I urge you to listen to the uh, student sessions. They were really something. I just want to play a little bit of his, his piece, which is about, uh, he interviewed a woman who's HIV pos- positive in Rwanda, And um, he's here from Rwanda, especially for Third Coast. He was brought. When my husband came from an HIV test, he didn't tell me the results. I saw them under the mattress when I was arranging the bed. I was very sad at this. After, I went to the hospital, not for an HIV test, but because I wanted to apply for a job, and the employers told us to provide our medical status. The doctor gave me the results of all my tests, except the blood test. 
He didn't tell me why, but in that period, people who had AIDS could not be hired. In 1996, I went for HIV test, and that's when I found out that I was HIV positive. Donata says contracting HIV from her husband led her to not trust any men since. If I could be young and healthy again, I know it's impossible, but if ever could, the only thing I would put in my head is that all men have HIV AIDS and I would never marry because now I regret it so much. Thank you. Thank you. For Thank you for coming. Please make sure to give a listen. Okay. We have about five pages of script and about a one page at a time. So here we go. Pedal to the metal. Um, in an ideal world, we would have played you two or three songs that we wanted to, where we speak about using music as a riveting way to pull you into a story and begin a piece a piece of music like Born on the Bayou, or maybe you don't use it at the beginning of a piece, but you use it inside of a piece, and we were going to play this uh, piece of music, Night People, and then begin to play you a piece that we did from the Hidden Kitchen series. Um, so imagine that we've been talking about the use of music in stories and how something with a real driving rhythm, a real we'll interesting beat. ten seconds of that. So this is a piece we did for the Hidden Kitchen series, and uh... message 24 was received at 7 a.m. today. My name is Arissa Arend. I live in New Orleans. I have a friend who created the most amazing kitchen. His name is Robert King Wilkerson. He was in prison at Angola State Penitentiary for 31 years. 29 of those years, he was in solitary confinement. He was a Black Panther, started a chapter of the Black Panther Party with two of his friends. They've sort of become a cause celeb known as the Angola Three. Somehow, in solitary confinement, he managed to create a kitchen, and he made pralines, which we love here in New Orleans. He's out now. They decided they had made a mistake for locking him up for so long. He had a new trial, and he sells his candies that he calls freelings, and they are really, really good. I was fascinated with sugar. I used to watch Mama make candy with pecans and sugar and water, but it wasn't until um, some years later, when I first went to prison, I was cooking in the kitchen. This guy was in the bakery. He could bake all kinds of pastries, make all kinds of candy. I was fascinated with the candy. What I saw before my eyes was like a science being revealed. My name is Robert King Wilkerson. We used to get milk practically every day, or butter and sugar. They would put it on your tray whether you drank coffee or not. So I used to get the guys to save the sugar. Sometime I was fortunate enough to get pecans. They got a lot of pecan trees around Angola. And they had some officers, once they taste the candy, making sure I had pecans. <laughs> we would bribe the orderly. Sometimes you'd get a fruit can, peach can, but most of the time it was Coke cans. They were easy to get. Just peel the top and then peel another can, triple it up, maybe 18 inches long, 
and have toilet paper, roll it up, and turn it into like a burner. I was definitely hidden. They would come in, conduct a shakedown, and get the pot, get the can and everything else, and then right up. I kind of enjoyed the thrill of going outside the box a little bit, making candy, and then giving it away, you know. Especially the guys on death row, because I just wanted them to have something that they hadn't had in a long time. Good afternoon, this is KLSP 91.7 FM on your radio dial. And we broadcast daily from the Louisiana State Penitentiary at Angola. I'd like to take this opportunity to wish y'all and the brothers up on death row a very beautiful day. And I tell you what... King was released in 2001. On the very first day he's released, he's making candy. He was sitting there just stirring, stirring real slowly. Sugar candy. Freelings is what he calls them. I call them freelings. I mean, I wanted them to rhyme with pralines. When I first got out, I went in French quarters and I went through every candy shop and I thought I could do better. Having what I say, I guess, perfected a candy while I was in prison. He uses it for a fundraiser. When he goes to events, political organizing events, a lot of times he'll bring some candy and and so that's kind of been the way that he's made some pocket change, which has been really important to him because after 30 years in solitary confinement, it's not that easy to just go out and get a regular job. My name is Anne Harkness. I'm an activist and have been King's pecan supplier pretty much since he got out of prison. Everywhere he goes, he'll just bust out in some candy making. My name is Malik Brahim co-founder of Common Ground Relief and resident of uh, New Orleans and the community of Algiers. King and I was raised together. His backyard was uh, adjacent to my backyard. Three liens is something that he's doing to subsidize his income. That's the only option that really he had is by making candy. On his wrapper is not just no uh, logo of King. It's Free Angola 3 about his two comrades that are still incarcerated. He always looked at that injustice. His kitchen will reflect it. At least it is full of debris. It is some of the dirtiest toxic soup you can imagine. Reporting in New Orleans, I'm... It was a few days before Katrina. I had made a batch of candy. That was the last time. I could have went to the Superdome, but there was no place to keep a dog. Kenya, that's the name of my dog. I got her when she fit in the palm of my hand, you know. So I elected to hold tight. There were some people who came by in boats. We exchanged food. I gave most of the candy away. There were dogs screaming who had been locked up in houses. My neighbor next door I had to break in the house, but I sealed it back up. I had to go in there and feed her dogs. She had two of them, and I had to fight them to feed them. You know, and I had been in the water twice to save two birds whose wings had gotten wet. I was hearing about so much death and devastation that was going on around me. I felt imperative that I save a life. I think I cried more in those 16 days that I was in the house after Katrina than I did in 31 years I did in prison. It not only took so much away from me as an individual, it replicated this hundreds of thousands of times. I think candy is, is a collateral. My doing what I'm doing, keeping focus on the injustices that were taking place in Angola, 
if doing so by cooking, making candy, open up kitchen, can produce money to aid them, so be it. Maybe that's, that's my calling. So we play that piece in this... Oh. We play that piece in the spirit of talking about the reverberations of radio and what happens, how the people you tell stories about become part of who you're traveling through life with. Um, that Robert King Wilkerson, um, we called him and told him that we were coming here to Third Coast and we were going to play this piece and he busted out in some candy making. <laughs> and so SALT <laughs> is now going to pass amongst you, many of the students at SALT. And here are some of King's Freelings. And um, yeah, just real quickly to say and talk about how these stories impact. So that piece aired on NPR, Angola Penitentiary called and said, you know, there's, we're big fans of the Kitchen Sisters at Angola, which who knew? They listened to <laughs> Kitchen Sisters and NPR at Angola. But then they said... Um, you know, we want you to come to the penitentiary. There's no, we want to prove to you that there is no way King could have made those pralines in prison. There's no way he could have done that in solitary confinement. And we called King up and we said, King, they said, um, there's no way you could have made those pralines in prison. And he just said, well, I guess that's why they call it a hidden kitchen, isn't it? (laughs) But here's the even weirder part of it. So King called from the penitentiary just a few months ago. And because of this piece and all the work of all the people doing the solidary work with the Angola Three, these people who've been in solitary for all these years in Angola, in Louisiana, John Conyers and the Black Congressional Caucus opened up an investigation there. King was allowed back in with the Congressional Caucus, and when um, he went in this van with the warden, he brought these freelings back to give to the uh, brass at the prison, and he said, oh, I made this candy, and uh, the warden said, yeah, you learned everything you knew here in this prison. I heard the radio show. (laughs) So just you never know where your stories are going to land. So, Joanna, I think. We'd like to invite a couple of radio sisters up here. Julie. There's Joanna. a lot of sister acts there in are public a lot radio. There are sister acts. So, um, you know, I, I think one of my favorite things is collaboration, and we've been lucky enough to uh, find each other and a partnership and a friendship, and we've been producing together for some 20 years, and... I just think, I mean, so many people in this room collaborate together, but I think that's one of the juiciest parts and Kara of what and we Anne, all do. And I just heard of a new uh, sort of collaboration between Jamie and Eloise, and I, I think that lots of collaborations are born here at Third Coast. You have to be quick, ladies. <laughs> a few marriages, too. I'm happy to say I always marriages. wanted to be a Yenta. <laughs> and Johanna and I feel like we get married every year. <laughs> Planning this thing. And yes, ironic, huh? With a wedding coming in here soon. Uh, hi. hi. Thanks, some people. Yeah, this but is hi um, first. Aww. It's great to be on stage with you. We love you. What are we doing? This is uh, 
This is where we spend a little bit of time thanking everybody who's made this weekend possible and giving you a little bit more information that you'll need for the rest of the evening. And, uh, well, people thank us all weekend, but we really thank you. Thank everyone who comes and who comes, you know, more than, more than once, twice, three times. In fact, um, I haven't told you this, Julie, but um, we're going to offer people, if they come 10 years and doesn't have to be consecutive, you get the 11th one free. Ooh. That was Lou Olkowski's idea. Thanks to everyone who attended. Thanks to the moderators, doctors, Radio Haven presenters, Gallery of More contributors, and yes to all of you. Thanks to our amazing, amazing team at the Third Coast Festival. It's small, but it's mean. <laughs> to all the volunteers and to the devoted mentors who gave their all their time to help us guide the scholars through their experience here. Thank you very much. Thanks to the amazing technical assistance from Jason Ward and Bob Weston. And their Shelly Steffens, they have a really tough audience to please, and they really did an amazing <laughs> job all weekend. Um, thanks to photographer Stephen Gross, who's really captured. I saw him getting shots of the pralines. We're going to have a lot of stuff to share, so stay tuned for that. Uh, very special thanks to the hotel staff, Allison Jack, David Kinney, and Fernando Sanchez, who, with such grace, responded to my request for a custom ratio of savory to sweet bagels. I mean, really, he went above and beyond. He also um, got stuck in an elevator for 30 minutes with Stephen. Oh, <laughs> a little behind the scenes there. Yeah. Uh, to our conference sponsors, AIR, PRX, yes. Whole Foods, the CPB, and the Goethe Institute Chicago. And to Third Coast Festival supporters, Richard H. Driehaus Foundation, American Airlines, and Chicago's Navy Pier. Yay. As you know, the conference isn't actually over, over. There's the, there's the award ceremony tonight. Come with your name tag, and you can get in easily, quick service. Um, otherwise, we'll have to find your name on the attendee list. It's about 10 minutes away. Directions, walking directions are out, actually out there in the lobby, so it's easy to find. The program starts at 8. Please be there by 7.45 so we can start, you know, sort of on time. So that's what's coming up tonight, and it's going to be fabulous, and Star, among other people, will be picking up their awards. Um, I wanna, we want to say really specifically thanks to uh, Delaney Hall, David Wilcox, Peggy Rubens, the Third Coast Festival staff, our interns this year, Katie Mingle and Ben Winter. They made your experience that much smoother. Um, yes. Uh, after the award ceremony, it's not quite over. We have the um, second annual post-ceremony hoopla <laughs> celebration um, at the Union Pizzeria, a really nice place just down the street from the ceremony. So take a stroll down there. We hope to see you there um, for a cash bar. You can buy your new special friend a drink, uh, snack on some pizzas. They're staying open for us, so this is really a chance for us to all gather together as a group. I really hope you'll, you'll join us. Um, and most of all, we want to keep doing this, and we want to keep doing it better and better. So please fill out your feedback forms, your suggestion forms. They will help us uh, put on next year's show. And last but not least from us, um, we want to keep the energy of this festival going, this conference going. It's the hardest part. So, you know, find all the websites of the Kitchen Sisters and the people you've met here. Go, you know, become a member of AIR. Take part in PRX. Load up your work. Download the work that you hear there. Go to transom.org and read their manifesto. So really embrace the whole community, and let's keep this energy going until next fall. 
And that's about it for us. Well, wait, Thanks exactly. to the Kitchen Sisters for closing this down. What a weekend, what a session. <laughs> Thank you so much, you gals. They, they wanted to do their thank yous after everything, and we said, no, our favorite things is that these two women and the team they assemble create Third Coast year after year and have transformed the system from doing it. So you seriously, Thank you, favorite thing. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, no, I have a photo. So, okay, so uh, one last thing before we go. Uh, so there we are at uh, the Kitchen Sisters Central in San Francisco. Nathan goes downstairs, finds this story in Ode Magazine, a kind of manifesto written by Brian Eno, that strange and beautiful recorder, producer who um, makes electronic sounds and sort of turns the whole recording studio into an instrument, right? Uh, we read Brian Eno's article and we immediately knew two things. One, that we would uh, tell Jay Allison about it because we felt it would make an incredible This I Believe, and two, that we would ask Jay Allison to read it here as part of our favorite things because Jay Allison is the bomb for us in public radio. And uh, so we invite Jay Allison, a favorite person thing, <laughs> up here to close our session with a manifesto. Thank you, favorite people. <laughs> Thank you, Julie and Johanna, for this tribal gathering. I don't know what we do without it anymore. Thanks so much. You know, the... If you ever collaborate with the Kitchen Sisters, and you will, eventually, they'll make you, uh, you know, you'll find that they, they, they find stories everywhere. Everywhere they go, they turn one over in a cab or an elevator. I mean, I, I've traveled with them and uh, gotten diverted in all sorts of surprising directions because they're relentless, you know. They just, they want to find out what, they want to make strangers into friends, which is in some ways, I think what radio does, and a good radio story does, it's, it, 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 you know, it creates this sense of community. Uh, and, um, you know, and, you know, also all of us who work in radio, I mean, I am shy. I think everybody has some, I mean, why would you want to work in a medium where you were being intimate with people you couldn't see? Uh, <laughs> there's something fundamentally dysfunctional about the whole thing. <laughs> You know, it's, it's, uh, you're detached, and yet you want to touch, and you can't. So you keep trying. <laughs> yeah. All right, this is from Brian Eno. As you figured out, the Kitchen Sisters aren't so much about radio as they are about food and music. Um, and I, I was, I was going to say, I was remembering we had Sam Phillips for a conference, and then we ended up, everybody, we had bread, fresh made bread for everybody after, afterwards. Anyway, you're going to get food and music this time. I hope you enjoyed your pralines. This is from Brian Eno. He wrote, it could be a this, I believe. You know, we all used Brian Eno when we were starting out in radio. He was the ambient track of every radio documentary. You Steve Reich <laughs> and Brian. We ripped him off so badly. The chickens come. 
he says, this is about singing. It's about you singing. I'm writing this because I want to encourage you to sing. A few years ago, my friend and I realized that we both loved singing, but we didn't do enough of it, so we started a weekly a cappella group with just four members. After a year, we invited others to join. We didn't insist on musical experience. In fact, some of our members had never sung before. Now the group has ballooned to around 15 people. The reason I'm going to try to persuade you that you should start your own a cappella group is because I believe that singing is the key to long life, a good figure, a stable temperament, increased intelligence, new friends, increased self-confidence, heightened sexual attractiveness, <laughs> and a sense of humor. There, that got your attention. So what's so good about singing? Well, there are indeed physiological benefits. You use your lungs in a way that you probably don't for the rest of your day. You breathe deeply, deeply and openly. And there are psychological benefits. Singing aloud leaves you with a sense of levity and contentedness. And there are what I would call civilizational benefits. When you sing with a group of people, you learn how to subsume yourself into a group consciousness because a cappella singing is all about the immersion of the self into the community. That's one of the great feelings, to stop being me for a little while and to become us. That way lies empathy, the great virtue. And he goes on and on, but we're not going to because instead we're going to sing. And uh, musicians will now materialize and they will lead us together as we sing songs that Brino, Brian Eno recommended that we do. And also, Ly just, Lyrics are being handed out. Just so you know, uh, we called Brian Eno and told him about Third Coast and told him what we were doing and got these songs approved by Brian Eno. So uh, he is expecting uh, a full report and uh, gives his Brian Eno blessing, his ambient blessing. Yeah. And, and once again, he will receive no royalties. <laughs> So uh, this is the Third Coast uh, Orchestra, uh, and we'd like to welcome them to the stage. Your song sheets, please share. Want to pull your mic up? Stand up. Okay. This is the first annual Third Coast Hootenanny. I think maybe stand up. You know, get your lyrics. lungs. These are good songs for hard times. They are. And what to do about them. Can we say that this band just materialized an hour ago? So, and can you move over them? Born one 
one morning it was drizzling rain. Fighting and trouble are my middle name. I was raised in a cambric by an old mama line. No high tone woman made me walk the line. No sixteen tons. What do you get? Another day older and deeper in debt. St. Peter, don't you call me cause I can't go. Women better step aside. A lot of men did it and a lot of men died. One fist of iron and the other of steel. If the right don't get you and the left one will. Sixteen times, what do you get? Another day older and deeper in death. St. Peter, don't you call me cause I can't go. from Russia. <laughs> this is the Russian contingent. We need Pat Hannon from Ireland to have a, what, a penny whistle next time or a little accordion, a little concertina of something. Anyway, next, next third coast, everyone brings an instrument. All right, for this final choral moment here, uh, there's, uh, this is with a little help from my friends. And the boys will ask the questions in the bridge, do you need anybody? And the girls will respond, I need somebody to love.